Snap Studios. A little while ago, my brother calls. Talk about he wants me to take one of those DNA tests that tells you where you come from or whatever. You think I'm stupid, huh? And let the man get my DNA to grow a clone off in his lab somewhere? No thanks. I seen the movies. But he's steady pressing me. Come on, come on. I know you want to know. Send your DNA in. But then don't clone me. You're the older brother. Don't you want to know where we come from? Where we come from? And I think about my grandfather spending his youth living in a teepee. His family listed in an official census registry as being something called mulatto. I'd ask him, Granddaddy, what's, what's a mulatto? And he'd just laugh like I told a funny joke. Light-skinned man drawn toward my grandmother's dark ebony tones, attracted to her fire and her step when she danced that dance only she knew. As a child, I ask Granny where her parents are, and she tells me she's born of the moon and the nighttime sky. And this makes perfect sense to me, so I go back outside to play, and I wonder now, if I do take my brother's DNA test, Will my drop of blood reveal definitively that I am one part Luna and one part Midnight? And if I already know where I come from, why am I scared to let someone else tell me? Well, today, on Snap Judgment, we proudly present Bloodlines. A quest to close the circle on a very personal origin story. My name is Gun Washington. There are lies. There are damn lies. And there are DNA tests. When you're listening to Snap Judgment. Today on SNAP, we're bringing you a story from Adriana Rodriguez. Adriana used to work next door to SNAP's underground layer, right over there. But now she's a producer over at Vice Audio. And before all that, Adriana was born and raised in the Central Valley of California. When she was a kid, she was given a choice about whether or not she wanted to stay here or leave everything she'd ever known. It's a choice that she's reckoned with for her entire life. And today, over a decade after she made her decision, Adriana takes us with her to North Dakota to find out what could have been. Snap judgment. I'm trying to make it less institutional. That's just a supply closet. Um, like that furniture, my sister got new furniture, so she just gave it to us. Is this the bottom floor? Because I, yeah. I came downstairs, huh? Yeah. Okay, nice. And then these are the, this is the, um, the girls' room on this side. 
We need new curtains. See, these are just whatever. I'm on the top floor of a children's shelter, looking through faded curtains out at the Missouri River. The girls' room has two sets of twin bunk beds. This could have been my home, a children's shelter called the Lake Oahe Group Home. I could have woken up to the sounds of the river every morning and gone to bed in these bunk beds. These bathrooms they renovating. Okay. This is the girls' bathroom, yeah. Every year when we would get licensed through the state, they would come and we'd get dinged on these. This is her room. The stall doors are slightly falling off the hinges. It reminds me a lot of the bathroom from a different children's shelter across the country, the one that I did stay at when I was a kid. And I'm here to imagine, just for a few hours, what my life could have been and how my childhood could have been different. I was 12 years old when I got my first period. I woke up with blood in my underwear. All I could think about was how I destroyed my new clothes. Would I get in trouble for ruining the brand new pair of white underwear that had just been given to me? So I rushed straight to the bathroom and tried to scrub them clean with the bar of soap in the shower. I quickly twisted and squeezed out the pink soapy water from my underwear. I got dressed, I grabbed some toilet paper, folded it up and tucked it between my legs. I hid the stained white pair of underwear in between my mattress and I didn't tell anyone. It was my first month living in a children's shelter near Stockton, California. I came here in a police car with my brother and sister in the middle of the night. I had one arm around my brother and one arm around my sister. I told them, everything is going to be all right. They were too afraid to even speak. When the woman at the shelter was doing our intake paperwork, they both hid behind me as she asked how old they were. She's eight, I said, and he's four. I didn't know how to spell my sister's name. I could barely spell my own name. Don't worry, we're here, we're together. Those are the words I heard myself saying over and over again. I had become the oldest overnight. The next day, when I went to the nursery to check on my brother, I couldn't find him. He was gone, taken to a foster home. My stomach dropped. I didn't know where he was going, and I didn't know if he was okay. Later that week, I found out that my little sister was going to be sent away too. Her and I both cried as we hugged each other. That was all I could do. I told her that we would see each other again soon, but I had no idea if that was going to happen. I didn't know where my brother and sister were for a couple of weeks. We were being shifted around with no explanation. I just wanted to go home. I just wanted my mom. I wanted my dad. Some days I would turn to a small box that held a few of my favorite things and I'd cry. A broken Tweety Bird watch and a candle topper from my most recent birthday cake. I also kept my beaded hairpins and the letters that my cousin sent me during my stay at the shelter there. I called it my sad box. 
I saw my mom once a month, on Wednesday afternoons, at a visitation center. I'd ask her, when are we able to go home? Soon, she replied, just a little longer. After she left, I curled myself into a ball and cried myself to sleep. In the mornings, I would find cuts on my legs from scratching them during the night. Finally, after a couple of months in the shelter, I got some good news. One afternoon, a pretty woman with straight brown hair told me I'd be coming home to stay with her, with the foster family. She'd be my foster mom. She picked me up in an SUV. It smelled like French vanilla air freshener. My kid sister was with her, and so was my little brother. My sister and I smiled back and forth at each other the entire ride. My new home is a bright yellow house with trees all around it. I had my own bedroom. My foster parents let me pick out new clothes at the store. They took us camping to Six Flags, Raging Waters. There were specific eating times. Dinner was at six, and every Saturday morning, we'd all eat a big late breakfast together. Eggs and sausage, whole wheat pancakes. This was very different from how our lives had been before. And I started to get this feeling that where I had come from was wrong, and that this is how things are supposed to be. I remember the first time that two days had passed, and I didn't think about my mom. I felt so guilty that I cried. And in an effort not to forget her, I would whisper her name aloud to myself throughout the day. Sylvia. 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 Months turned into a couple of years. I started high school. My foster mom taught me how to use a tampon. I joined a swim team. I was terrible. Our social worker would visit us every few months to check on us. He wore a brown suit and always made bad jokes. But he didn't really have any big updates on our situation. By the time I was 15, I started to doubt whether we would ever go back home. And then, one afternoon, when I came home from high school, I was met by my foster mom, who was standing in the living room. She said CPS had called the house, and she told me that the state officially terminated my mom's rights. I didn't exactly know why. I took a deep breath and told myself, you're going to get through this. Shortly after that, I came home to find a letter on the kitchen counter. It was from our tribe, the Standing Rock Sioux. Enclosed was a document with our tribal ID numbers and notice of their decision to intervene in our custody proceedings. Now that my mom's rights were officially terminated, there were a lot of words on the pages that I didn't understand. Eventually, our social worker showed up. This time, he seemed a bit more serious, and he wanted to talk to me alone. So I sat in my room at the foot of my bed and waited for him to speak. 
He explained to me that my mom's rights were terminated, the tribe was involved, and that there's a special law for kids like me and my siblings. And that's when he gave me the choice. He told me, one, I could move to North Dakota and live on my reservation with my tribe, or two, stay in California and choose to get adopted. But if I stayed in California, my bloodline would be severed. And because I'm over 12 years old, I also had to make this decision for my younger brother and sister. He came down to my level and asked really slow, does that make sense to you? I nodded, but in my head I was like, where is North Dakota? And what does the word severed mean? I asked him questions about who we would stay with in North Dakota, and if we would be able to stay together. He mentioned possibly staying at Lake Oahe, my tribe's group home on the reservation. When he left, I went downstairs and asked my foster mom about the word severed. She explained to me that it meant detached, like cutting your arm off from the rest of your body. That sounded really bad to me. I felt like I had just lost my mom, with her rights being terminated. I can just hear her voice in the back of my head telling me, You're native. Don't you ever forget that. I remembered us going to the community powwow together, where I got my beaded hairpins. And I didn't really know what it would mean for me to be cut off from my tribe, but I knew it was an important piece of me. But I still had other family members in California, and I craved stability. I didn't want either option. Neither one of them was good enough for me and my siblings. So I wrote a letter to the court, asking the judge to let us stay in California without cutting ties to our tribe. After a few weeks, we got a response back. We got everything I was hoping for. We were allowed to stay together with our foster family in California, and we were even allowed to have visits with my mom. And we wouldn't have to sever our bloodline. We could never officially be adopted by our foster family, but I was just happy to be staying together with my siblings in California. Finally, we weren't worried about being bounced around, but keeping our complicated family together was really hard, and everything was about to fall apart. Not too long after, my brother ended up being sent away to a different home, and I stopped spending time with my kid sister. She was always in trouble. My mom eventually stopped coming to our range visits, and through all of this, I also pulled away from my foster family. And then I finally turned 18. I started showing up at family gatherings, my older sister's birthday parties, family barbecues at the park, shopping trips with my cousins. But so much time had passed, and I didn't know what to talk about with them. And I still didn't know exactly where my little brother was. In foster care, I managed to maintain my tribal status. But what did any of it matter 
if I didn't even have a connection to my own family. I wanted to understand how I ended up here, feeling alone, disconnected from my family and from my tribe. Feeling disconnected from both her family and her tribe, stay with us to follow Adriana's quest to figure out how did she get here? Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Bloodlines episode. When we left off, Adriana had just turned 18 years old, and she couldn't wait to reconnect with her family. I wanted to understand how I ended up here, feeling alone, disconnected from my family and from my tribe. So I started spending time with my mom. We'd get coffee and rummage through thrift stores together. Over a decade has passed. Now she lives just a few hours from me in Stockton. We talk regularly. We go to the community powwow every September, and sometimes I just show up at her house. When I arrive at her house in Stockton, the house smells like oil and bread. She has a friend in the kitchen, teaching her how to make fry bread, flour, baking powder, and Crisco. It's a little hard for as far as calorie-wise, but I still, I still love um, that knowing that I have, you know, our family, the history goes back and we belong to the fry bread. <laughs> fry bread became a Native American staple when the U.S. government supplied reservations with rations of flour and oil. And they had no choice but to make something out of it to stretch. Mm-hmm. So they would make fry bread because it stretched. and it Like me, my mom also grew up in the Central Valley of California, away from Native traditions, like beating, wait, dancing, wait, fry it. bread. Yeah, go ahead and start mixing it. Okay, you can do little by little. Use little batches by little. So, These days, like my mom's also on this sort of quest for connection. Just go in on it. You don't even have to, like, it's not just bread or regalia or Lakota lessons on YouTube. My mom has been putting together the little bits and pieces of our scattered family and our story, the clues to how we got here. Before we start, I'm going to go stage and I'm going to go pray. Finally, we sit down to talk. The farthest back story that I remember is a story that my cousin told me. She said, Grandma said that when um, they were little, my grandma's grandma. Mm-hmm would tell them, uh, do you want to know what kind of games that they played when they were little kids? This was not my grandma talking. This was her mom. She said the mom would dig a hole in the ground, and they would put the little kids in there in the hole, and they would tell them, shh, 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 because the, the white people were passing. When state workers would come to reservations unannounced and force kids into government vehicles, my grandma's parents tried to hide their kids. They thought they were playing games but they were actually teaching him how to be quiet. That's the oldest story that I remember. My cousin, uh, she told me that. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, messed up. Um, there's actually a lot of family stories that are kind of, they're tragedy. They're kind of messed up. The other family story she knows, her grandmother, my great-grandmother, 
was taken from her reservation to a boarding school where she learned how to set a table, read the Bible, comb her hair. These are the reasons the Indian Child Welfare Act, the law that forced me to make the choice when I was 15, was created in the first place, so that Native kids couldn't be taken from their homes and forced to assimilate to white culture. That law was intended to protect me from the things my grandmother and her mom and her mom had to go through. When my great-grandmother grew up, she and my family left North Dakota in the 1950s. They came down on that MOVE Act, you know, the uh, San Francisco, you know, when all the natives got to relocate. It was called the Relocation Act. The Indian Relocation Act, which encouraged Native people to leave their reservation for urban areas. As part of the nation's Indian termination policy, the goal was to assimilate Native people in metropolitan areas. And in a lot of ways, it worked. I remember my mom saying they changed their names because their last names was Speakswalking and then Yellow Eyes. She changed her last name to Arnell. My great-grandparents settled in California with their kids, including my grandmother. She struggled with discrimination and homesickness. She also felt alone. She was away from her community. By the time my grandmother was 18, she was pregnant with her first kid. My mom was her youngest, and at 11 years old, my mom found herself living on the streets. I went in and out of group homes for like three years. I got caught up making all those bad decisions and not having my mom around to tell me, you know, you don't have to um, put up with that. And life was just a mess. Before she was 25 years old, my mom had five kids. And she always reminded us that we were Native. When we were little, she would always get angry about the morning announcements in school and told us not to participate in the Pledge of Allegiance because she didn't want us pledging to the white man's flag. She was 32 years old when the cops showed up at her house and put me and my brother and sister in the back of a police car. I remember when um, they took him and I was really messed up. I wasn't, um, I know my mind wasn't right because it was numb, it was numb all the time. And, my mom's eyes start um, to swell with tears as her face turns red. Like I said, it's really hard to talk about. You know, it's hard. She and, shakes uh, her leg nervously and looks away from me. And then I ask her the question I had been waiting to ask her. Was she even aware of the choice that I had to make? Okay, you asked me, um, Mom, remember when uh, we had the decision to make about foster care? Remember? Mm -hmm. I don't remember. Um, probably from the guilt and shame, I just, I don't know. So, I tell her. When they terminated your rights, it came time for us to make a decision. Like, they asked us, what do you want to do? They said, do you want to um, stay here in California and be adopted, or do you want to go back and live on your reservation with your tribe? I ask her if she thinks I made the right decision not to go to the reservation. Yes. Yeah, of course. When I think about that choice, I mean, I really didn't know if I had made the right decision or not. It's like I could have an opportunity to live with 
with native people from our tribe on our ancestral lands and the other thing when i think about this question too is like at that time i had like one objective and it was like okay i'm in foster care now with my brother and sister my main goal is to keep us together and i made the decision to stay here and that didn't even happen you know like they took my brother away from me so that was like okay i thought this was a good choice for us to stay here but maybe at least if we all went to the reservation maybe we at least would be together even if it's separate from everybody else which we already were separate from anyways that's really hard um you can't understand it when you're living it i guess only when you get to look back looking back i can't even there's no words for it i only see pictures I only can you understand that? Yeah. I only see pictures. I see, I see, um, I see um, what I watched on when I'm learning, and then I put my family in it, and I'm thinking, dang, okay, that happened, that happened, that happened, and it's just like a vision. It's like a vision with the with feeling in it, and it's really hard to explain. It makes me prouder, proud of being like having survived through all that. I want to dance. I want to make this, make my regalia. I want to know more about this. I started looking back at the whole picture, seeing that it wasn't even my mom's fault. I told my mom that I wasn't mad at her either for what had happened to us. I don't want her to feel bad. I just understood really quickly that it's hard, you know? It's a hard life that we had to go through. And so I don't want you to feel bad about it. It's okay. Thank you. <laughs> I know it was, it, 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 that always goes through my mind. But as the years are passing, it's getting a little bit more, um, I'm being able to accept it more that, that we can go forward because always in the back of my mind, I, it's always- Even though I was able to talk to my mom about what happened, I still hadn't gotten over the decision I had made. I thought about the years I had lost spent away from my family. I thought about the fact that I had no real relationship with my tribe. I felt like I still needed to know more. And the only way I could think to move on was by going to North Dakota to try and get a glimpse at how my life could have been different. At this time, please take your seats, fasten your seatbelts, store your tray tables and carry-on bags, and ensure your arm is forward. Once again, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Delta Flight 3510 to Bismarck, North Dakota. Good to have you with us this afternoon. So I packed up my warmest clothes, bought a ticket to Bismarck, and decided to go to the reservation that my grandmother had left over 60 years ago. Hello? Oh, hi, Mom. I got I got oh. the phone finally. Service. <laughs> yeah, it kept dropping. No, it was just this bad service out here. Yeah, well, you're way out there in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, there's some stuff, but it's just pretty, there's really bad reception, and most of it. I'm so glad you're safe. Yeah, well, I think I'm only an hour ahead. It's 10 o'clock right now. Oh, okay. Um, 10 o'clock in the morning, and then I'm just going to bed. Oh, hold on, someone's calling me. I gotta call okay. you back. I love you. Okay, love okay. you too. Bye. Bye. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. I'm doing a story on child welfare, and so I just had some questions about um, what the children's shelter does and how it operates and everything. I kind of always wanted to like visit it and like imagining like, wow, like this could have been a situation for me where I could have come here. If you want to come out here Friday morning, I will be here. Thank we you. are north of Fort E. We're almost to the river. Okay, so it should be about three miles down this dirt road. 
Here it is, Lake Oahe group home. Hi. Hi. Were you waiting, Mom? No, I just oh, got okay. here. Okay. Should oh, I take these boots off? I arrive at the children's shelter early on a Friday morning. The shelter sits on the banks of the Missouri River. It's a two-story building covered in a blanket of fresh snow. The shelter looks beautiful, sitting next to the icy, shimmering river. I kick the snow off my boots and head down some stairs to meet Rebecca, the manager of the shelter. <laughs> Hey, Rebecca, right? Yeah. Adriana, nice to meet you. How are you? Good. I, I, uh... Rebecca started working out as a case manager for six years in the tribe's CPS office. In 2016, she came here, to the tribe's children's shelter, formerly known as the Lake Oahe Group Home. But we changed it to the youth shelter because the Family First Act of 2018. A couple of years ago, a law passed. It required the group home to add trained medical staff to their payroll, which was a move Rebecca says they couldn't afford. Higher level of care, which wasn't financially feasible for us. So we researched options. So the home had to change its name and its primary purpose. Now they can only take kids for up to 30 days at a time, which has only made the care of native foster kids even more insecure. It's always been an obstacle is enough money. And I'll show you what it looks like around here, like the conditions out here. Rebecca tells me she hasn't redecorated her own home in years because a lot of her personal money goes into the shelter. Then I painted that wall, then I bought some pictures. Like a lot of stuff is out of my own pocket. In the kitchen, she points out the window to a small peak covered in snow. And like during the summer, we'd have sun dances. In fact, there's a sun dance right above the, on top of the hill over here. She also told me that council members come by once a week to teach the kids how to bead and make regalia and take them to sweat lodge. Rebecca then points to a small plate of food set outside on the deck. It was put out the night before to keep the spirits at bay. Did you put a spirit for that? Yeah, that's what you do. Like you tell the spirits to leave, then you set food outside for them. I hadn't grown up practicing these things. And I tried to picture myself as a young girl putting out plates for the spirits. My brother and sister going to Sundance. It was easy for me to look past the foggy bathroom mirrors and mismatched curtains and imagine myself happily beating and going to ceremony. So yeah, this is, this is the place. I mean, it feels nice and it feels safe to me. Mm-hmm. You know, as, I mean, with some minor upgrades. It could be better though. I mean, like with the sewer As we wrapped up the tour, I returned to the question that had brought me here and I wanted Rebecca's take. Did I make the right choice? Like, you know, what, what am I maybe missing out on? You know, would I have gotten like a different experience at least had I been in, in an environment where at least there's people who are like me? But I think it's, you know, it's sometimes it's depressing living here. I mean, it is what you make it. Mm-hmm. Like there's times I want to leave, but it's like, well, this is my home, you know. I, if I want to leave, I can go visit somewhere for a week and then come back. But some people don't have those means, so they're yeah. stuck here all the time. Seeing the shelter and talking to Rebecca, I realized I might never find an answer to my question. There was no right or wrong decision. Either choice I had the option to make would have stranded me in a system. Um, our caseloads were anywhere between 20 to 25 
which was manageable. I mean, it was difficult, but... And unfortunately, that system hasn't improved. In the past 10 years, the number of Native children placed in the foster care system has just gone up and up. I mean, it was difficult, but more manageable. Now, I think their cases are 40 to 45 per caseworker. Listening to Rebecca talk, I thought about all the children who stayed at this shelter and where they came from. And then I thought about my own family story. How my great-grandmother learned to hide as a child so she wouldn't get taken from her family. How my grandmother was forced to go to an off-reservation boarding school. How my mom was in and out of group homes at such a young age. How I aged out of foster care, feeling completely alone and lost. I told Rebecca that one of my biggest aspirations in life is to have my children not go through the system. And I think actually my children will be the first children to have not like gone through some program like foster care, or group homes, or boarding schools. That's pretty crazy to think about, actually. Yeah, that's, you know, I could say the same with my mom. You know, my mom grew up in a foster care system, too, so she's, you know, she's one of... Before I left the children's shelter, Rebecca suggested that I make one last stop at the tribal administration office. In a quarter mile, turn left onto Standing Rock Avenue. So, I'm here at the administration office. Um, just parked in front. I'm going to get my stuff together so that I can go inside and get my tribal ID card today. Yeah, I wanted to get my tribal ID card. And then also, um, is it possible to talk to somebody here about getting a record of my family history printed off for me? Is that also enrollment? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Oh, okay. I've always belonged on pieces of paper. The course of my life has been determined by my belonging on pieces of paper. Finally, holding this card for the first time, I didn't really feel much. (sighs) Okay, thank you so much. The idea has a white background with my face on the top left corner and my blood quantum in the bottom right. It's the size of a debit card. Oh, hi, Mom. What are you doing? I was getting ready to roll it up to go clean the trailer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What are you doing? Oh, I just got my tribal ID card. <gasps> Lucky duck. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I, What's I, it look like? I'll send you a picture right now. Wow, that's awesome. Okay. Is it nice? Yeah, I just sent you a picture of it. I had to, cause you, you have to be here to get it because yeah. um, they have to take Prove your picture. You. Yeah, they have to take your picture. Yeah, makes sense. 
I know that this card doesn't actually make me any more connected to my tribe. Back in California, a lot of tribes aren't even able to be federally recognized and get a card like this. So, and then I also I also asked them for the um, genealogy, the genealogy printout, and they gave me one too. Me and then you, uh, and then uh, Marianne speaks walking, and then Helen, Nellie, Irene, Twigs, comma Arnell. Seeing my family history, though. Seeing this long line of ancestors who had survived again and again and a system built to erase them, I've never felt more of a sense of belonging. Okay, well, I'm gonna go back to work. I'm so glad that you're having fun. I can't wait to arrange a trip to go over there one day. Yeah, one you day. can come out here. Yeah, and, and before I get too old. Uh, I love you. Love you too. Have a good rest of your day. Yeah, I'll be back okay. uh, at the end of the week. I'll talk to you later. Okay, all right. Okay. Bye. Big, big love to Adriana's mom, Sylvia, and her kid sister, Maddie. This story was produced by Adriana Rodriguez and stamped Dutch with Shayna Sheely with help from Vice's Adiza Egan. Adriana Rodriguez was supported by the Fund for Journalism on Child Wellbeing, an initiative of the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism and its 2020 National Fellowship. You can also hear this story on a new podcast from Vice Audio called Strongman. It's a six-part series of intimate stories about power and control at every level, all over the world. Additional thanks to Jacqueline Estes, Karen Brown, and Catherine Sifter. The original score for this story was by Renzo Gorio. I know, I know. If you dig it, tell somebody before it's too late. Or just sport. The Snap T-shirt of your dreams. Available at snapjudgment.org. If you miss even a moment of today's show, subscribe to the amazing Snap Judgment podcast wherever you get your podcast. If you want all the secrets behind the story, follow Snap Judgment on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Do not miss a beat. Snap is brought to you by the team that always always demands an exit row whenever they get on an airplane except of course for the Uber producer Mr. Mark Middle Seat Ristich there's Pat Messina Miller Anna Sussman Renzo Gorio John Facile Shayna Sheely Marissa Dodge Taylor Ducat Flo Wiley Nancy Lopez and Regina Bediaco now this is not the news no way is this the news in fact when you move from one place to the other, you could lose the only copy of the antique photo of your grandmother's family sitting around the table. No. And before everyone loses their mind, you secretly replace it with another antique photo of some other family who had a picture available on eBay. And you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRX. PRX.